Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Counter, an NFL podcast from USA Today Sports. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Counter. We start our draft preview stuff this week. I know you're excited. I know Steven and Charles are excited, too. Because <laughs> they're always excited. You guys are... You just love writing about the football. Love writing about and talking about the football. Draft season is the worst season. Of, uh, would, <laughs> is it, though? The worst Wait, I, I promise you that if I go back, and I'm not going to because uh, I don't want to, but I promise you that you, you there are quotes like free agency is the worst season, uh, preseason is the worst season, middle of the season is the worst part of the year. I promise no, you. Pre- Preseason is the best part of the season. What? Nothing matters. And you, don't have, you can just write whatever you want to write. You can just die full on to the delusion. We need to take more of that energy to draft, though. Like, that's the problem, right? People, everyone is, like, so invested right now. And really, like, it's, you know, it's some, like, I don't know. 30 of these guys will be really good. Most of them will just drift off into nothingness. But we're about to put a ton of energy into evaluating them. Get excited. Yeah, it's, we're going to waste the next month, <laughs> the next two weeks of our lives and never get it back. And none of this will matter in, in two weeks. <laughs> yep. And the, the best part about draft analysis is, is you kind of forget that people even exist after like a year because most of them don't do anything. Oh, my gosh. The, the number of times that I'm watching a game and they don't, it's not even that a player gets mentioned, but I'll like see him on the bench and I'll just remember like some intricate scouting report that steven wrote in 2016 that i had to edit that was like you know 1200 words about this guy <laughs> you're talking about kyle Walletta. just saying <laughs> i drove to richmond to watch film with the guy oh my god and then i was like hyping him up i don't know why and then like two months later or after he got trapped by the giants did he get like arrested for like doing something <laughs> crazy in traffic and at that point i was like well i, I wasted my life there <laughs> it was good content though yeah, I think it lasted like one season with the Giants too. <laughs> oh man, we got we got to track down Kyle Laletta. See if so maybe he thinks his career went downhill when he spent that time with you too. Did you ever think that? Like, uh, yeah, that was yeah, a turning point for his. Like, life. I, I I really got bad vibes when uh, when we were watching film and I was like. I like I broke down what I thought he was thinking before the play. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's actually exactly what I was thinking. You're like, you're pretty good at this. And I was like, if he thinks I'm good at this, then he must. must (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, You should be the replacement for John Gruden in that show he used to do. Uh, I would love to do that. Yeah. Let me find fun. Yes. Joe Burrow would have fought me. <laughs> I, I, uh, Joe Burrow, Drew Locke, Josh Allen, all of them would have fought you, Stephen. 
Oh, there are Baker Mayfield. People. Baker Mayfield. No, well, I'll say this. I at one point I defended Josh Allen during the pre-draft process because when like someone posted, you're a lot like G- Chris Sims. You just defend and then rip. You know, you just you just put it all out there. Just let it. Someone posted yeah. his JV stats to Twitter, and that's just like, come on, man. What are we doing? <laughs> that's ridiculous. His junior college stats. They were pretty funny though. He completed like forty percent <laughs> in junior college. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so we're going to get into Stephen has ranked his top 10 wide receivers in this class, and it is a fascinating ranking if you've been paying attention to what other people are saying and the common wisdom out there about uh, these players. Stephen has he's veered from the pack a little bit. He's, 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 got some, he's got some takes, so I'm excited to talk about those. Uh, Charles is going to dig in on the defensive line. Uh, he is not <laughs> super excited. Uh, we're still in the midst of getting that post together, but he has some thoughts to share with you about uh, an underwhelming class. Uh, but first, we want to get into a couple of the other stories going around the NFL. Uh, we're going to talk about the athletics takedown of the Philadelphia Eagles uh, front office ownership whole shebang. Uh, we'll talk about the players, the teams, actually entire teams and players for other teams are saying that they are going to skip voluntary workouts uh, because the COVID pandemic is ongoing case you missed that news uh and we'll talk about Jadavian Clowney ending up with the Browns and how we think that will work out um but let's dig in on this Eagles story uh this was the big big bombshell of the week in the NFL dropped uh what was that Monday I guess uh Sheil, Bo Wolf and Zach Berman uh Guys that I follow closely, uh, you know, their work since I, an Eagles fan, I went to college with Shield. Uh, they wrote this story, Paranoia, Mismanagement, and Office Politics, Inside the Eagles' Downfall under Jeffrey Lurie, Howie Roseman. Uh, and essentially, the, the crux of this piece here is that uh, Doug Peterson, who was fired weirdly after the season, it was not a Black, Black Monday firing, it sort of happened a little bit later, uh, and then that sparked this uh, suggestion that Peterson and Laurie just couldn't get on the same page. And then there were rumors then that that uh, Peterson was just tired of being micromanaged. And, and this story essentially confirms that, that every Tuesday uh, there were Tuesday tribunals where uh, Laurie and Roseman would sit down with Peterson and essentially go over the game with him. And make him sort of justify his decisions, whether it be play calling, personnel use, whatever. This sounds, uh, Charles, you would have a better idea than I would, having been close to an NFL team recently. But I have never heard of anything like this in sports. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird. Uh, I mean, just the fact that, like, the, the example that they gave where... Peterson was getting questioned after a win. Right. And it's just like, really, like, after we win, you're going to come here and tell me that you read some crap that said I didn't pass enough? Like, we just won the game. We're like, it, it was, I think the game that they're referring to is even like a pretty good offense performance. And it, it was just, it just showed someone, to me at least, an owner who, and I think that this is true of a lot of owners. I don't think that this is something that's exclusive to uh, Jeffrey Lurie is that he just doesn't have a great feel for like the actual 
right. things that are going on during a football game. Uh, I mean, a lot of these guys, like they just they got their money elsewhere and were like, hey, it would be cool as hell to own an NFL team. So uh, let me do something like that. And uh, the fact that, you know, not to dig at Warren Sharp because he's been nice to me over the years, but like, can you imagine if you're Doug Peterson and the owner is telling you, like, I read these reports from Warren Sharp says you're not passing the ball enough or you're running the ball too much. You're not being aggressive enough on fourth down. Like, yeah, that would get tiresome to to anyone. Uh, so I I totally understand. Like after reading that, like I was exhausted reading it, and <laughs> I didn't do any of that stuff. So and then you, you throw in the other reports that <clears throat> we've heard about Carson Wentz and how he can be defiant with uh, some of the play calling and how he was not really ever on the same page with his teammates, especially last year. Like I can see why for Doug Peterson that seems to be like a really difficult work environment and it's yeah, definitely unusual like right. even even there were there's like some older nfl players chiming in who read the article and they were just like i have no idea what this is because this is insane yeah the, the game that you're referencing the one that he was questioned for running too much uh was in 2019 the eagles beat the packers 34 27 they were trailing 10 nothing in the second quarter and uh they went they went to the run game essentially to win uh, Green Bay had been terrible against the run for a while at that point. Uh, and like keeping the ball out of it, like, you know, like we obviously all here talk all the time about running the ball is not like, it's not a, an efficient way to, to run an offense. But like if Aaron Rodgers is the other quarterback, then there's like, there's some validity to keeping the ball on the ground. And, and it worked like the margins of the NFL are so thin. You know, like if, if you can find a way to win that football game, the Eagles would have been I'm trying to remember. I think they would have been like one and three if they had lost. And like you lose, you go to one and three, like it's really hard actually to make the playoffs after that. Uh, so it it really was sort of an interesting uh, decision for them to, to rip into that. And, you know, we also know that Wentz was just not, that great at that point you know like there's there's all those other factors going into making the decision of what you want to do with your game plan as it uh, as it actually evolves you know during the game this just reminds me like i say this a lot or at least i have in reference to the panthers because david tepper was held he's the owner he was held up as this like guy who embraces analytics and i don't like we we just use this word analytics and it's a catch all for anything that has to do with statistics. Right. But what analytics is to us who are online all day and like reading PFF Moo and Ben Baldwin and like there's a lot of other guys doing like this high level research and like Chuck said, nothing against Warren Sharp, but he's a very like surface level type of analytics guy. Like he's, he, he doesn't look like he doesn't really dive into the deep details and it's and sometimes there's questions about the sample size he's, he's using so the fact that the eagles who were held up as this bastion of analytics and they were on the forefront of it the fact that lori and roseman were getting these like surface level reports that someone like me or chuck could produce in like five minutes is just hilarious to me and i don't think analytics to jeffrey lurie is what it means to some other people like like a, a cleveland browns organization which probably is embracing real analytics i it's just funny that though and coincidentally those two teams were held up against one another 
when the Wentz trade happened, we some people claim that the Eagles were doing it the right way, the Browns weren't doing it the right way, and now it seems like that's shifted. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another factor of the story is that the Eagles, like you said, they do, you know, they haven't been given credit, uh, and, and a lot of that credit went to Roseman for embracing analytics and, and having a department that was empowered, but uh, it seemed that there was not harmony between the coaching staff and that analytics department, which, I, like, it just seems, uh, again, from the outside, like, how can you not, uh, like, if I were an NFL coach, I would want as much information as I could get. Because that's really all analytics are. It's not, there's nothing fancy going on. It's just, like, uh, trying to quantify how things happen on the football field, Uh like which is what coaches were doing all those years when they were watching film uh, like this is just using uh advanced methods to to look at that in different ways and use it in predict predictive ways i mean like it's there's it's just not it should be part and parcel of coaching right it's just like an extra layer it's it should be like uh, the way that coaches are already thinking right they want to understand how the game is happening like they should not be as much of a mess as in 2020 the, the these sides are still at war uh it's just sort of hard to believe um the other thing interesting here is the uh the, that jeffrey lurie who you know was a hollywood producer before buying the eagles uh has like long uh been obsessed with grinding draft film apparently yeah uh, that was like weird. I, I didn't realize he was like a draft twitter dude yeah he uh <laughs> he is draft twitter as like a person i think uh but it says here that he would hold up in his media room above the garage of his beverly hills home and watch tapes of the blue gray game the Japan Bowl. See, I don't even. What is the Japan Bowl? I didn't even know that existed. Like, what are we even talking about? But Jeffrey Lurie apparently was was watching it and, <laughs> uh, and has been like sticking his nose in in that. And and I can't decide whether like that doesn't matter because all drafting is impossible, or if it's like just the dumbest thing for an owner. Oh, it's be. the dumbest thing. <laughs> it is the dumbest thing. I, I, I'm also wondering. Do, do we think? Lori was getting all 22 or do you think that he was like relying <laughs> on like YouTube highlight cut ups? Oh, he's like the Dick Bomb Productions videos on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like to definitely think that he's just like he's not actually working or using his vast wealth to get it. He's just grinding out whatever whatever anybody can get. Like yes. I wonder if he does a mock draft. Oh my gosh. I would love to get my hands on a, a Jeffrey Lurie mock draft. I remember it being a thing that Corey Chavis, he was like an old defensive back in like the early part of the century. The 2000s, I mean, not in the 1900s. And he was doing a mock draft, and that was a big deal, and he was still in the NFL. But his mock draft was wild. He had like Seneca Wallace going first overall. It's <laughs> great like mock. I remember Tony Jefferson did a mock draft a couple of years ago, where and he had the Cardinals like taking a safety like replacing him basically i want more nfl player mocks yeah that would be amazing because the best would be if like someone was like a teammate of jared goff and they like drafted a quarterback that would cause a lot of friction in the locker room I mean, yeah, you, we, already, we already had the situation where michael brockers was like man we got a huge upgrade over jared goff when sam when uh stafford got traded and michael brockers got traded to the line so <laughs> <laughs> i mean he's not wrong i would just go to jared and be like i no. mean 
Come he's on. not wrong, but he had a funny he had a funny bit about it the other day where he was talking about how he had to apologize to Jared, but that they're cool now because he, he made those comments like in front of the press after Jared got sent away. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, there's also a little bit of Carson Wentz discussion in here. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, essentially that the Wentz Peterson. Uh, the, the cause of the dissolution of their relationship was that Carson Wentz was really smart and wanted to control things at the line of scrimmage, uh, but that led to confusion from the other players. Uh, and so Peterson had to rein him in, and that was the source of the frustration between the two. I have no idea what to make of that theory That's because yeah. right like i mean he was just actually, calling audibles that didn't exist <laughs> well right like was he just bad at communicating like was he bad at yelling things at the line right, like, like what? The, the idea that he's just so smart and his team right. just can't keep up with him like i, right. I feel like we're kind of saying that in like maybe probably opposite way that that <laughs> went like because i mean just for me like one of the traits that I look for in really smart people is the ability to communicate. And if you are just going out there and just calling stuff out and 10 other people <laughs> are looking at you like, what the hell are you talking about? Then there's probably something wrong with you, dude. Uh, yeah. You might not be as smart as you think you are. Yeah. I mean, watching Eagles football made it very clear that Carson Wentz may have had an alternate plan on every single play, but like <laughs> no one else had bought into that plan. And like right. that does not mean you're smarter than everyone else. It yeah, just means I was, you're going yeah, your own way. You're, I was going to say is is it that Car- Carson Wentz was so smart, or that Carson Wentz thought he was so smart? Right. Because there's I mean, a big I, I, difference I, I, between those two. Yeah. Like I'm imagining him like calling like you know like in Madden how you call hot routes. That's like not actually really a thing. I guess it, it could be in some certain situations, but he was just like calling hot routes at the line of scrimmage and the wide receiver's like what are you talking about yeah he probably saw it in the movie wedding crashers and he was like i'm gonna do that that's gonna work uh, let's give it a try yeah it, it was just it's, the whole article is just like man you know how did they win that super bowl like, that's, well that's my question for you guys like i you know I, it's just like yes this is awful and it's terrible but like the philadelphia eagles had never been as big you know like they went to that was the best team ever right like they lost super bowl to the patriots i mean that was a that was a good team uh but like this is the team a a a team with doug peterson uh having to go to these tuesday tribunals is the one that finally got there like what does that tell us about the nfl and i'm I'm not even sure it's it's very luck luck based right and I, i can't believe you guys needed this article to have those thoughts about that super bowl year do you guys do know that nick Foles started the super bowl and outplayed tom brady like it was a weird thing that was never yeah. gonna happen again wait what's and, weird what's weird about that <laughs> i don't know no. you gotta ask uh ryan pace uh <laughs> but but like we hold we like i think everyone has agreed that carson wentz's 2017 season was a fluke probably like most rational people right. yeah. why aren't we holding harry roseman to that same standard why aren't we like saying oh maybe he's not this smart guy maybe he just got lucky that one year yeah and the more time I, I think he's we had to will, control right? the roster, he's got like when you when you grade when you rank the GMs, you had, you had Roseman somewhere near the top. I had time. Roseman out number one, okay, <laughs> two years ago. Two years and ago, I'm, okay. And I'm a goddamn idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you you will hold him accountable. The problem is that Jeffrey Lurie, like that's the that's the other like the point of the story is that it just seems like Jeffrey Lurie almost certainly will not anytime soon. 
Uh, and it's it's already extraordinary that that Roseman has made it through four head coaches. Like that's a very unusual uh, scenario <laughs> where, yeah, you know, they I have, mean, I, I feel like that that part is something that I think people already thought because like there's no other way to just right. assume there's no there's no other like logical step to make for Harry Roseman keeping his job this long other than he's like best friends with the owner. And hey, that's smart on Howie. I mean, that's what I'll be trying to do too. Right. I, I, I mean, think that that's how uh, Dimitrov was able to last like 13 years in Atlanta. So it's a it's a it's a smart play. But like I I I just the thing I I love the most about this article is it shows like how how a billion dollar organization something that right. you know like people will get on Twitter and say you know an NFL coach said x so x must be true and the fact that you think y or z is possible is just irrational and crazy like there's like they've kind of built up that mystique in terms of right, the level right. of expertise but dude they're run just like stuff that <laughs> right. like, you know, anything like, like, and like any job that that you've ever had right. like like their nfl teams are going through the same dynamics and it's just like how did these guys get so much money to play with like it, it's just <laughs> insane which <laughs> which nfl owners do you think we could convince to give us that type of power like you just have to <laughs> one thing is i i don't want to be the type of person who like would be friends with an nfl owner because they're all like awful people so like harry roseman is that's i don't know i couldn't sell my soul like that but if i wanted to who do you think we could dupe into doing it i feel like we could dupe jerry jones into giving us that power i, I was about to say I, I i have three people at the top of my list jerry jones mm-hmm. if you like He's like he'll tell you anything pretty much. Like if you ask him about it, uh, I mean, he he goes on the radio all the time and says stuff that he shouldn't be saying. So I, I think, think the strategy there is to like drive a wedge between him and and Stephen Jones. Yeah, if there's a way to do that. Yeah, Jerry Jones, uh, Arthur Blank, because I think that he's just kind of desperate to figure out what this next step is for the Falcons, and I could just come in with some fake expertise, bang. And then Shad Khan. I mean. Mm. Yeah, he seems like someone would be. Pretty- Dave Caldwell stuck around for a <laughs> long time. Saying. That's what I'm saying. You should, you show up to Arthur Blanks in a in like a pinstripe suit, and you're in. Like, <laughs> I was gonna say, what in. is the actual strategy with Jerry Jones? Like, I was thinking just like a backyard barbecue, just yeah, have well, him over, like bar- smoke some meat, ball. just yeah, yeah. say some, say some, film. say some like some bootstrap related things that like, <laughs> people don't watch some old about. Arkansas football clips. Yeah. Tell him that was shrugged. In your <laughs> bag. We confirm his belief that people in Texas don't need electricity during a massive power outage. <laughs> and you're in, you're in. I wanna, would you guys, uh, you know, the new coach, Nick Sirianni uh, is a dude who came from nowhere, right? Like uh, there, there were probably people on the Colts staff who barely knew who he was. Uh, and now he's, a head coach, and it seems abundantly clear that part of the reason he was the selection is that he has no leverage whatsoever to say, like, to say, I'm not meeting with you, with you on Tuesdays to have you question my my decision making. That's not how this should work, right? Like, he is part of it is just that he is going to be a guy who need who will will acquiesce to that. Would you have done that? Like, if you were in Sirianni's position and you weren't, it was going to take you another probably seven years to. Get a head coaching job? Would you? Oh hell yeah! Trade off. You don't even have to finish the question for sure. I would take any job 
like it's going to pay me a lot of money. I don't need to be qualified for it. That's on them. But the funny thing about that thinking is it's kind of what happened with Doug Peterson. And then he oh, won absolutely. It, it absolutely happened with Doug Peterson. He won the Super Bowl. And now he's got clout and he can push back against you. And like, that's the thing with these hires. Either they're going to be successful where, the, where they're going to get that clout and they can push back at you. Or they're going to fail and you're going to look like an idiot anyway. Like, what's the upside? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of power, let's talk about the the power dynamic unfolding with the players uh, who have pushed back on the quote unquote voluntary workouts. Uh, I can't remember which which team was first. Was it the Broncos? I think it was the Broncos. The yeah, Broncos and Seahawks. Uh, so so uh, the teams have been putting out statements through the the players' association, essentially saying that they are going to as a group not go to the voluntary workouts because uh, they don't want to risk getting COVID-19 for for off-season workouts. Uh, and this is such an interesting – it just brings up this larger question of, like, why do these things exist in the first place? <laughs> like, why uh, – like, there's no other function in – in American employment where like, yeah, you could, you can voluntarily work if you want for a little bit. Oh, that's the only reason I'm doing this podcast. I thought, oh, okay. Well. No, no, this is actually tied to your compensation. I think. Oh, uh, it's just, it, it's like, it just sort of feels like maybe the players will get together and decide not to do this in the future because there's nothing else like this in sports too. Like there's no, uh, there's no NHL players going to voluntary workouts in uh, July between their seasons or anything. Uh, I think what happened was like the idea was created during a time when <laughs> like old football writers would would criticize a player for not showing up. Right. And they'd be like, oh, this guy doesn't want to win. So well, that's right. how it was allowed to happen. But now, like everyone is cheering on these these players for not showing up. Well, most people, I think. And. I think it's going to lead to the end of this. I don't think there's going to it. Teams get fined every year for violating these rules already. So just get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like players just kind of looking at it like, like not all of us are vaccinated yet. And like we just saw last year, we don't need to do this to be able to be in good shape for, you know, whatever, whoever's coming down training camp. Uh, whatever else is down the pipeline, like, you know, if they're voluntary and they're in a pandemic, like, I really think that anyone who has a problem with this is just a narc. And, <laughs> like, it's just kind of missing the big picture of this thing. Yeah. Like, it, it says voluntary, so they shouldn't have to go. It's a pandemic. Not everyone's vaccinated. Like, this seems pretty easy. Like, I, I don't even know if this is going to be uh, a thing that stays around for a long time more than, you know, for this year, like, why the hell would we do this? Yeah. And so many of these players, it, like, there's <laughs> the idea that they would need to go to wherever their city is uh, to properly train. Like, they all have private – they all either work out with other players in groups with trainers or they have their own private guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, most of them have multiple coaches, like, <laughs> helping them out. It's just not – uh, there's, there's no risk of them not 
I mean, some of them may not be in shape, but like it's not a, a, a large scale problem where like they can't get good workouts in wherever they are. It's just not realistic. Uh, and certainly having a, a virtual offseason last year, like you said, Chuck, like it, it's not like it showed in the in the quality of the play on the field. Yeah. this year. Like nobody was saying like, man, if only they had had real <laughs> voluntary workouts last uh, April. April, everything would have been way better. Like. It was, it was essentially the same product. So, uh, so yeah, good for the players though for for actually getting it together and, and standing up. I mean, a, a yeah, lot it, of time. It, I was about to say real quick, like there are bonuses attached to showing up to these workouts, so there are players that are giving up a good amount of money to take the stand too. Right. And this is also a, a case where the because the way that the league exploits the players is that the we've talked about this before the players association is so large and the players the the vast number of players who are living on the edge of the league and not making a ton of money have have more voting power than the players who are secure and the league exploits that and they do it with stuff like this like those players to them have like having these voluntary workouts like they might vote for it in the CBA because that's a way for them uh, to show like look how dedicated I am I'm showing up I'm here every day I'm going as hard as I can go uh, so the fact that they that the players were able to get together on this and all opt out uh, as a group on these teams is meaningful for the future of uh, the the labor force in the NFL. Um, let's move over to Jadavion Clowney. Jumping to the Browns. Uh, I mean, I, our read of Jadavion Clowney is that he's a really, really good player who, uh, because, you know, I think that the view of him around the league is that he's something of a letdown because he does not put up huge sack numbers, but his pressure numbers are actually really impressive. Uh, now he's teamed with Miles Garrett. Uh, how do you think this, this will play out? It's pretty well. I mean, I, to me, Clowney, like at this point, is someone who's like if you can if you can look at your defensive line and say that Clowney is like our second best player, right? Then you're in a really good spot. Like like for like if he's your best player, like I think we saw with Tennessee last year and even Seattle at times, like maybe it's just not enough from like finishing pass rush plays to like consistently be great as your number one option. But like if you're a clear number two with Clowney, that's a pretty special spot uh, to be in. And, you know, I kind of feel the same way about uh, Tack McKinley, who they signed to. Like, if he – like, in the same vein, like, if Tack is your best pass rusher, you're not in a great spot. But if he's, like, your second or now in Cleveland, like, your third best pass rusher, then, like, you're really cooking with something. So, like, I think that this really kind of rounds out their – defensive end room and like there's still rumors that they could take someone like uh Jalen Phillips at the bottom of the first round just to give them like another long-term contract along the defensive line after they let go of Vernon so uh I'm I'm excited to see this Browns pastures I hope everyone stays healthy and that Miles Garrett is uh fully recovered from COVID because that has a a ton of potential yeah I think it's gonna it's definitely a good move for the Browns and what is it like an eight million, ten million dollar deal? Like that's nothing yeah. to them. I I think it's good for the Browns. I don't know if it's necessarily the best thing for Clowney himself. I would rather have seen him in a mm. more creative defense, at least in terms of pass rush. 
it seems like I don't know. I haven't studied the Browns' defense, but from watching them in the playoffs, it seems like they were more of just like a straight four-man rush. And we've written about Cl- Clowney. You kind of have to move him around to get the most out of him. You can't just expect him to beat a tack off the edge just because he doesn't have great bend at this point, and he he's not really good at turning that corner. Right. So, yeah, that that was I, my question because he. The, the narrative around this appears to be like, oh, well, he's he's not going to get double teamed as much. But like he played with J.J. Watt. <laughs> like that was uh, like this is not the first time he's been uh, across the, the line from another really good player. And if I remember correctly, he actually had his best seasons with the Texans when Watt was out. There were like those two years when Watt was basically out like he was hurt. Uh, and I, I don't I don't remember if he played any games in 2016. And then the next year he maybe tried to play a couple games it was not really uh, that effective and then was gone and i think those are the years that Clowney had close to 10 sacks uh you know he actually put up numbers so i, I was wondering what like what we what you've actually seen that makes him successful like, i, is I would argue using Clowney. i would argue that Clowney's presence is better for miles garrett than miles garrett's mm-hmm. presence is for Clowney because I yeah, think Clowney is that movable guy that you put all over the the formation and dictate protections, and it's actually keeping Miles Garrett from getting double teamed. Although I don't think ends usually get double teamed that much, like especially if they're staying outside. That's just they might get chipped by a tight end or a running back, but you're not getting like two offensive linemen on you a whole lot. <laughs> right. So I think Clowney's actually going to be the guy eating the double teams if they use them on the inside while Garrett stays clean on the outside. Yeah. I don't know, though. Who knows? Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who knows? Speaking of who knows, let's get to this draft content. Yes. Yeah. Can't wait. Uh, wide receivers. We, st- we started with the wide receiver. Why did we start with the wide receiver class? I don't even remember how we decided. Because that. that was the position I watched first. <laughs> to be honest. And I, Very scientific. I, I notes that, was, that were easy to turn into a post. There we go. There we go. That's, that's why we did that. Um... Uh, also, I, I feel like you were. We were just on the wide receiver thing from free agency. It seemed like the wide that that was the most interesting group of free agency. So we just carried over to the draft. That's, I'd also say in recent years, like it's not. It's never going to be like quarterback. Like quarterback just drives people insane and like creates all these crazy takes. But I think wide receiver is getting close to that level where that's the second position now that's like really scrutinized yeah. and people argue about rankings. Right. So that's why we did it. And yours has something to argue about, I think. Uh, most most lists on the internet, I, I checked a lot of them, even some disreputable ones, as, as Stephen pointed out. When I you was, went on WalterFootball.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I, was, I was just being thorough, man. I am very thorough as an editor, all right? Uh, most of them, Football Outsiders agrees with you that Devonta Smith is the number one wide receiver, but the vast majority of the rest of the the internet has Jamar Chase in that number one spot. You don't even have Jamar Chase at the number two spot, which is, is definitely an outlier. Um, 
you 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 went with the Alabama guys first, uh, Devonta Smith, and then Jalen Waddle uh, at number two, and then LSU's Jamar Chase. Uh, go ahead and explain yourself. Uh, so I feel like we've gone the uh, too far with draft coverage. Where at one point it was like all about traits and like this, you could really see this with the quarterbacks, like big quarterbacks with huge arms that were fat, right, like right. they would go high, and then. Somewhere along the lines, we were like, oh, maybe we're looking for the wrong things and we should be looking for like smart, accurate quarterbacks or whatever. Like Mac. And that's how you get like a Mac Jones in the top (laughs) 10. But like, but for receivers, for me, I want to see if I'm taking the guy in the top 10, I want to see them like, I want to see special movement skills. Like they look different when you're watching them move compared to everyone else on the field. Like Tyree Kill, if you watch Tyree Kill on film, you have no problem finding Tyree Kill. You just press play and you see the the freak just zooming downfield. And I feel like with Waddle and Devontae Smith, like th- that's those guys. Devontae Smith mm-hmm. does it in a different way. He's just it's hard to find any fault in his game when you watch his film. He just gets open no matter what route he's kind of route he's running, where he's running on the field, what depth, whether it's deep, intermediate, short, he has to get open quickly. He does it. He gets open. He just glides past people. And he can catch the ball. Yeah, I know there's a lot of concerns about him, like his weight. He weighs like 170 pounds, which is just ridiculous. But he had no problem getting off press just because he was so quick. No one could touch him. And that includes a lot of NFL caliber cornerbacks in the SEC. The one thing I would say is the catch point is where you could see the, the weight become an issue. He kind of gets mm-hmm. pushed off the ball. And then as for Waddle, I think Waddle is what everyone thought Henry Ruggs was last year. Like, he can run. He's fast. He's like that Tyree Kill type of speed where it jumps off the screen. But where he separates himself from Ruggs is he can actually run routes. Like, you could see him changing the tempo of his routes. He'll, like, start off slow and, and you know, catch the cornerback off guard. And then all of a sudden he'll just accelerate, and the cornerback has no chance of keeping up with him. So those are the two guys where I can envision them just being freaks on the NFL level. Mm-hmm. Then you get to Jamar Chase, who – if you look at his production, you're like, oh, my God, this guy is one of the best receiver prospects ever. Like I saw someone say, I don't even know who it was, but they said he was the best one since Julio Jones. Offensive. Exactly. <laughs> like that's – and Julio Jones is one of those guys I described. Like you watch him play and move on the football field and how big he is and how quickly he moves and you're like, this dude is different. He's right. just different. And Jamar Chase, even on, in college, never stood out to me like that. Mm. Like he what I mean, he's fast, but he's not burning by anyone. When he creates separation on a vertical route, he's not really extending his separation like Waddle does. And uh, I mean, he doesn't create a lot of separation at all in any type of routes. It's, he's just a bully. And it's hard to be a bully when you're six feet tall and you have tiny arms. His arms put him in, the, I think it's the 18th percentile yeah. of the class. And I just don't know if that bully ball is going to translate to the NFL when he's dealing with bigger corners who are going to have an easier time sticking uh, sticking tight to him. He's not going to see as much zone coverage. He's not going to see as many like as big as the voids and zones are in college because of the hashes. He's not going to see that. So I don't know. I think he has to land with the right quarterback. If he doesn't land with the quarterback who's, who's willing to throw into a tight window, I don't know if he's going to get enough targets to – justify him being picked where I think he's going to end up being picked. Right. Who? So who, who is a comparable for him? Like Anquan Bolden? Is that? I think that's like that. He was the guy that was the, you know, the tough 
undersized receiver who made contested catch. I, I mean, I think he could be someone like that, but I think the hope is DeAndre Hopkins. Like, right. I don't think anyone would pick as good as Anquan Bolden was. And I think he has a better case for the Hall of Fame than Julian Edelman. But as good as he was, I don't think anyone. Would we weren't going to get into that, man. We, we just we were. I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I we were taking the high road, and you just brought us down into the mud. Jesus. Sorry, I apologize. That's right. As you know, accept this apology. I didn't include any white scrappy receivers in the top ten. <laughs> Steve Largent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think DeAndre Hopkins is the hope. Because I don't think you use a top 10 pick on Anquan Bolden. Like, even if you know what Anquan Bolden became. Right. But DeAndre Hopkins is a guy that, but he's so rare. Like, how many undersized bullies actually work out in the NFL? Like, for a long time, I'm remembering the Mike Thomas tweet where he was like, Laquan Treadwell uh, ruined it for those guys. Like, he's one of those guys. Right. He's the type of guy that apparently it was ruined for, but I guess not. So what does Hopkins have that you think Chase lacks? Like what what is it that makes Hopkins able to get away with playing that way? I would say that Hopkins is a little bit more able to create separation consistently. Okay. I don't think he's over overly reliant on that contested catch ability. And I would also say that we've seen Hopkins do it at the next level. That doesn't mean Chase is going to be able to do it. So it's kind of a wait and see thing with them. And that's why I would be afraid to use a top 10 pick. Because if I'm using a top 10 pick, especially with guys like Sewell on the board, Pitts on the board, like I know those guys are going to be good. Right. I don't know. It's kind of a 50 50 thing with uh, Chase, for me at least. Charles, how do you feel about these, this, the top of this group? Do you have a, a differing opinion from Steven? Not really, but Waddle is someone that. The more I watched, I mean, I was just like, holy crap, this guy's amazing. Because we see we see a lot of like we see a lot of guys who are like, especially in recent years, a lot of guys who can really fly down the field. But it's just one thing when you can you almost run at full speed uh, out of your cut, like in and out of your cuts, Mm -hmm. Uh, because that's one thing like I don't think that Henry Ruggs can do. And it's like it's something like when, like when I, when I, cause I remember when Alabama was watching, was playing Georgia in one of those games that Georgia blew against Alabama. Uh, it, it was still when like Jalen Waddle was a freshman or a sophomore. And it's like rugs, Judy, Smith, Waddle on the field. And Waddle's right. like the fourth, and fifth option at that point. I remember Waddle got the ball on one play and he caught it and just took it like straight up the sideline. I ran everybody. I'm like, Oh, like that guy makes Henry Ruggs look slow. (laughs) And you see him kind of get into his expanded role. And it's just like, he's such a complete player. And it's weird. Like, like I think a Tyree kill comparison is like totally fair and reasonable because, you know, he's one of those smaller receivers that has the strength to play big. Like he's not, uh, like that's one thing that kind of separates Tyreek Hill from just like your average speed guys. Like he can go up and get the ball. You see some of the same traits with Jalen Waddle too. So I really hope that he's fully healthy because I think like the more I watched, uh, he was my favorite guy to watch in the class. But you know I'm still a Devonta Smith wide receiver one guy. Like that I just think the total package, the production. Uh, I think he's just to me like they're outlier guys, and he's just someone that's different. And you just watch him move and. It doesn't make sense that like someone who's 170 pounds can hold up the way he does sometimes. But uh, I like him a lot, and you know Chase is a good player too. I just don't 
I, one, I don't think he's better than Smith and Waddle. And two, I definitely don't think he's like the best wide receiver prospects in Tulio Jones. Cause like, I, I was literally just talking to somebody about this yesterday. Like, when when AJ Green and Julio Jones were coming out in that draft class, you just knew like you, you it took two seconds like you, you turn you turn the tape on or you turn a Georgia game or an Alabama game on and you, and you looked at it like okay those are elite receiving prospects like it's that easy like your grandma should be able to look at it and say that it's an elite receiving prospect and you know I don't quite feel that way about Chase. Right, and I I think Chuck brought up a good point about rugs in in Waddle. Like when you watch Waddle, it's apparent that he has that speed on every single snap. When you watched Rugs last year, like every once in a while he would yeah. burn someone downfield. But when he was open field, yeah. when he was running other types of routes, he didn't look like a four-two-four-three guy. But right. Waddle, every single snap, and you could say the same thing about Smith. Both those guys, just every snap, you He's, only need to watch one game of each to be like, oh, these guys are amazing. Right. And I'll point to the the Mississippi State game for Chase when. Dantzler was on him. Who's he's a more physical corner. He plays with the Vikings now. Like he ate him up, and he wasn't that fast. Like he ate him up. So I don't know. We'll see what what Chase does against NFL yeah. defenders. One thing I noticed, Stephen, this uh, we expanded this concept this year. La- la- the last couple of years, you ranked wide receivers, but uh, we did not go as in depth on the scouting report. I think this one is close to 3000 words, probably it's, it's uh, closer to 4,000. Uh, okay. It's uh, it's pretty long, but you should find it. Go find it at for the win. Um, but I noticed how much detail you included and how much you studied route running and sort of the intricacies of it. You really dinged a lot of guys for like wasted movements and things that like if you watch, like I know when I watch college football uh, highlights on a Saturday and like you just see wide receivers, like they're always doing so much more, <laughs> you know, they're like, right. uh, I, I should have highlighted some of the the stuff you put in here, but like, they're just like, crossing their feet over for no apparent reason. They're sort of like jump stepping in the middle of their route. Like there's so much going on uh, that that just like doesn't, that's the stuff that has to get stripped away when they get the NFL. Like you have, I feel like that's a new development too. Like, I don't know, maybe Chuck has a different opinion, but like in recent years, like the release thing has become like everyone like does the same releases. Now they're all like trying to look like basketball players crossing someone up. And I don't know if that's how it was like back in the day, but, since I've been watching film, it seems like that's become the thing. And like some guys take it to a level where it's too much. Like Kadarius Tony is one of those guys. <laughs> right. He's like comically committed to these exaggerated <laughs> fakes. It's hilarious at times. And, but my thing, I'm still kind of high on Kadarius Tony. I know there's other people that some people are even higher than I am. And I don't, I don't know how you take that guy in the first round just because he is like a gadget type player. That's how he was used at Florida. And if you're using him like that on Saturdays, what are you going to do on Sundays? Right. But there were enough, like the more I watched him and it probably was like the last game I watched of him. I saw him get open without doing all that exaggerated stuff. Okay. And I saw enough reps where I was like, okay, he's capable. He's still capable of getting open. Even if he doesn't have to, you know, chop his feet a thousand times at the top of a route. And that's why I have some optimism for him becoming an actual slot receiver at the next level. Yeah. Let's talk about your number four, just because he had he's, he's had an interesting 
trajectory. Uh, it's Rashad Bateman out of Minnesota. I mean, I think after the 2019 season, everyone would have thought he was a surefire first round guy. Uh, you know, he was really, really good. And then last year, I think he was, he was one of the guys who like opted out and then decided to unopt out and came yeah. back, but really never, uh, it was not nearly as good last season. Um, but what, how did you watch film from both years and what has you convinced that he's here? Because I think I'm trying to remember now, but I think you're higher on him than, than most other places are now. He's one of these guys who is you know, quote unquote falling. Uh, yeah, I watched, I think I only watched one game from this past year. Cause that's okay. all I had. So I, I mostly had to lean on 2019. Right. And it's funny. Like the big thing with him was like, he was a big guy that moved well. And then it turned out he was actually two <laughs> inches shorter, <laughs> two inches shorter and 20 pounds lighter than he was listed, which I just find hilarious. Like, did he think, or I guess it was Minnesota that listed him like that, but did he think that would last? Like I saw something where he was listed at six, three in high school and six, two at Minnesota. And now in the NFL, he's six feet tall. So he's just been shrinking the whole time. And for that, like I dinged him a little bit, but he has longer arms than chase and it, if Chase, if everyone believes he could be the contested catch guy, then Rashad Bateman, regardless of how tall he is, he has arm the length of someone that's 6'2". And that's why it looks like when you watch him, he plays bigger than he is. Mm. That's why people believed he was 6'2 and, and 20 pounds heavier. But his main selling point is his movement ability. Like, he can run routes. He can get open at – like Smith, he's always open. He earned targets at a – I used – uh Sports Info Solutions target above expectation metric a lot in this post. Right. And it's basically, it compares other receivers who ran the same type of routes, same in the same down and distance, same coverage, and like how likely they would be to be targeted. And he finished first in the nation in that, in that stat. Like he was, he got way more targets than anyone would have expected. And that's because he was always open and he's a guy who can catch the ball outside of his frame. He's very quarterback friendly. The one issue he has from when I was watching is is catching balls right on his body and catching balls in traffic, which is where maybe the 190 pounds thing comes into play. But other than that, like I have no doubts that he's going to be a productive NFL receiver. I just don't know if he's ever going to be an elite receiver because he doesn't have that like top-notch athleticism like Waddle has. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any more receiver takes. I only watched the uh, big three. There you go. I, I like it. I tried to I tried to watch this UNC receiver, Diami Brown, but I couldn't tell who he was on the field, so I quit. <laughs> That's probably yes, not. North, North Carolina's receivers all wore the same. They all wore the same stuff, and like from far away, you can't tell what the jersey numbers are. And then the end zone view is too tight, so you can't see until like they come into the like the the frame at the end of the play. So then you have to rewind and be like, okay, he was a he ended up here. So where did he start? When I go back to the all twenty, no, no, I don't like watching receivers that now. See, like that's the I I kind of wrote about this in the intro. Like, I don't think evaluating receivers is that hard if you actually watch the film. The problem is watching the film is awful because one, you're fast forwarding through RPOs and runs like ninety percent of the time. Or they're just getting free releases against like drop eight coverages where they don't even have to run a route to get open. And then that you have to find the receiver every play. Like whereas if you're watching a quarterback, you know where the quarterback's gonna be. You know where the running back's gonna be. You usually know where the tight end's gonna be. You know where the left tackle's gonna be. With the receivers, it's a it's an adventure every single snap. 
And I'm probably partial to guys that wore like unique accessories <laughs> and arm stuff just because they made it so much easier for me. There you, you go, guys. Bobby Brown is, probably got he probably yeah. got dinged because of that. Fre- freshman wide receivers out there in college, if you want Steven to notice you and put you high on his list, you just wear like an orange armband out of nowhere, <laughs> and that, that'll do it. You'll, you'll yeah, like it, if Bobby Brown was just wearing like a neon yellow armband. <laughs> That is completely wide receiver one. He's yeah, actually I mean, my favorite. He's actually my favorite though because uh, I was finding photos for this and Diami Brown. We had one photo of him play- playing football. Like, I mean, I guess we just don't shoot too many uh, North Carolina football games. But they went to his pro day, uh, and the photographer got obsessed. Diami Brown uh, did his pro day without a shirt on, and the photographer just got obsessed with taking pictures of his tattoos. So there's just pictures of his tattoos, and he uh, legendarily has on his back. So like, his back has a picture of him in a football uniform. His back. So he's got his back tattooed on his back. I mean, he's just a legend. He's, I know uh, that hurt because I have a couple <laughs> tattoos on my back and it hurts so bad. I can't even imagine you like a full back portrait of yourself or something like that. This is amazing. Yeah, this one. I mean, this guy's tough. Is well, that's what I'm hearing. Is you're saying that his toughness is He's tough. Yeah, he, tough. he should he he should do one of those things where like it's a picture inside of a picture and it just goes on for <laughs> an, an infinity. <laughs> or with tattoo a tattoo of his back. That would have been great. Missed but him. yeah, I, I think, what do I have him? I have him like, I have him behind all the small guys. It's like, this is a weird class where we have like three undersized guys who are all like. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I wanted to dig in on that because you, uh, you know, Rondell Moore is on here. So you actually, you have Tony first, right? The Kadarius Tony, and then you have Rondell. No, you have Elijah Moore next, and then Rondell Moore. Yeah. Yeah. So and I, those guys are interchangeable order. for me. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering. To be honest, like, I think. I think Tony has the lowest floor out of all of them. I agree. Actually, I've seen Tony from watching Pitt. I would definitely agree with that. Oh, Tony! Tony stands out, and like the thing about Tony is he's kind of big, even though he looks small when you watch him. Like I was surprised he was six feet tall, and I was like, uh, he looks like Wes Welker out there. But I think that's just how he plays. Elijah Moore is a small guy too. I think he's five eight, but he's probably the toughest receiver in this class. Whatever that means, it's it might. It might get Edelman in the the Hall of Fame. Sorry, I did it again. But (laughs) I think that's his selling point. He's just like a good football player. Ole Miss used him in the backfield and gave him like legit running back carries, and he was like really good against Alabama of all teams. So you could do that if you want. It's kind of like a a Debo Samuel situation, how the 49ers were using him two years ago. I think he's good. I just don't think he's a special athlete, and he doesn't separate enough against man coverage from what I've seen. But, like, against zone coverages, he knows how to find the voids and get open, and he catches the ball really well. That's the thing that stands out with him, too. So, I don't know where you take a guy like that, but I, I don't think I would take him in round two or early in round two. But I think he's going to be good. And then Rondell Moore, I don't know. It's hard. Just He's 5'7", <laughs> and he got hurt a lot in college. But when he played, he was really good. And he wasn't good in that, like, Tavon Austin, you had to scheme up plays, ways to get him the ball. Like, he could actually run routes, and he could catch the ball outside of his frame. Like, he was a legit receiver who just happened to be 5'7". But my big concern with him is I I just don't think he's going to stay healthy. He didn't stay healthy in the Big Ten. I don't think he's going to stay healthy in the NFL. Poor Rondale. No, he's a really exciting player. I mean, I've seen more of him than – 
the other guys. But uh, I, I think your general scouting report here is is that <laughs> these three are. Uh, if they're smart, <laughs> I, like I, I felt as I was editing this, I was like, you know, we're sort of saying the same thing over and over again, but it's true. Like if they get into a good offense or get paired with a good quarterback, they're going to have success. Right. Uh, and uh, if not, then they definitely can be guys who just sort of float away, which is what happened to Tavon Austin. Right. Like, this is why draft coverage is the worst of all. Right. right. It's because you have to say the same thing over and over again and try to be interested. It's try to say it interestingly, and it's very tough, especially right. when you're writing 4,000 words for receivers where like 80% of each scouting report applies to the other guys. Right. I mean, this is our top 10. And like basically after the first three, I mean, you have you have Chase. You're basically saying you would be comfortable you, you like in your hypothetical around pick 15 is when you would get comfortable taking him. Uh, he's obviously going to go higher than that. Uh, but then like after that, you just really we all get so psyched for the draft, right? Everyone gets fired up and your team only picks six players. So that's six guy or whatever. You're no matter what, you're just like, yeah, I can I can definitely see him filling that hole at a uh, defensive tackle. It's just not going to happen. Like it might happen, but it's it, it's like most of these guys just will not end up. Uh, exploding into the best possible version of what they can become. But that's sort of all we look at now. It's like, what is the best out, best possible outcome? And so much of it is reliant on who they end up with, not on, not on what they do or what they can do. Cause uh, again, it's just so hard to, to stand out in the NFL. Our jobs are a joke. <laughs> <laughs> they're not, but they're also not that much far away from like, like, we're, we were talking about. I mean, Eagles. Jeffrey Lurie's doing it too. So yeah, he's like exactly. a million billionaire. So yeah, he owns a football team. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to add anything about these last couple guys? Let's all. So after the smaller guys, you have Rondell Moore at seven, and then you have uh, that's when uh, Miami Brown comes in at eight, at nine. Terrace Marshall, the other LSU wide receiver. Terrace Marshall is an interesting guy just because he's also funny to watch because he's like six two. He's probably the biggest right. guy in the class. The biggest, yeah. But he runs like he runs routes like Kadarius Tony. Like he, huh. he he won't even have anyone pressing him, and he's still doing release moves at the line of scrimmage. Like just run the route. That's my big problem with him. Right. And honestly, I watched him and it was boring. Like I didn't have a take on him after I watched him. So that's why he's very, <laughs> I would have liked to. Include, to have included the Iowa guy, but I just didn't have enough film to watch. His name okay. is Amir Smith Marset. I thought he was pretty interesting as a prospect. He is kind of undersized and he plays undersized, but he gets open and he gets open deep. So I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being one of the better receivers in this class. But I didn't I didn't include him. So all right. I don't even know who else is on the list to be honest. So so the the keys are to not be boring when you're not not do actually not do too much when you're running routes. Don't be goofy while you're running routes. Wear something that stands out and and make the film easy for Steven to get. And that's how you get on this list. And here's the here's the funny thing is I tweeted about uh Smith Marset on Saturday morning, I think it was. And I I tweeted a clip and one of his teammates was like, "Oh, that's actually me." <laughs> And I was like, oh God, I'm an idiot. And it was him. I like zoomed in. I like I I strained to see and it was him. It wasn't even the same guy. Oh man. That's all right. Uh Charles, tell us about this defensive line class. Um it's and boring. What, you, what you're seeing. It's boring. Uh you know, it's just not very good. And I, I guess I feel like last year's was too, right? Am I remembering that correctly? It was like last year. Was just like Young and a bunch of dudes. Yeah, cha- yeah right. Uh 
I, this year, there's no Chase Young. Yeah, there's just, no Chase it's just Young. Just a bunch of dudes. Um, which is kind of interesting to me because I thought that we were going to get to the spot where, like, the athletes entering the league are so insane, and I thought that we were going to hit a spot where, uh, you know, we're going to have all these edge rushers coming to the league like every year. Like, I thought that there were going to be like Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa. Chase Young level prospects every year, but you know this year is just doesn't have that whatsoever. I mean, I, I, I like as I you know have watched tape on uh, basically all the guys who are supposed to go uh, day one and day two. I just I, I don't really see a compelling case for like any of these guys to be even first rounders. I mean, uh, this dude Jalen Phillips from Miami that people have gotten excited about like he has a horrible history of concussions and his pass rush uh you know his chops as a pass rusher like pretty inconsistent um you know I, I think if there's if you're going to make a case for any of these guys to go in the first round the best one's probably Christian Barmore from Alabama uh and it's just you know it it's just it's not a great class like i don't think that the depth is bad at all but it's just like a bunch of guys who should be going in the second round third round but you know still found time to uh wade through the sewer and uh find uh superlatives for five of these guys so i think i'll uh i can just run through that real quick i i, I haven't watched any of them but my favorite guy is the one who's supposed to like go in the first round but has zero zero sacks last year uh, yeah that's yeah. my favorite guy jason Owe, the penn state guy yeah yeah we're see like yeah that's where we're at though like a, a pass rusher with zero sacks is getting first round hype like i think that that tells you kind of everything that you need to know and, and he is a freak athlete but again uh, zero sacks. So, I, I I ran through a couple of these guys for a post that's going to be up uh, on the site soon. Uh, the highest upside in this class, I went with Davion Nixon from Iowa. I mean, it's it's like if Fletcher Cox was really bad at actually getting tackles for losses and sacks, <laughs> that that's what Davion Nixon kind of looks like. And like to to be fair, like he was still pretty productive. Like he had, I think uh, I want to say he had like fourteen tackles for losses last year for Iowa, but you watch him play and you're like, wow, dude, you should have had like 30, uh, like showing like how disruptive you are. Uh, I think I put, I put a clip in there where like he gets by the guard immediately and he has like the quarterback dead to rise. He just kind of slips before he gets there. And like, that's kind of <laughs> the, the, the Davian Nixon story. But I mean, the athleticism is crazy. Uh, he was like 315 pounds, ran sub five seconds. His, uh, 10, 10, 10 yard split was, uh, like one, like, high 1.6 uh 1.7 around that range so you know for his size like he has some crazy uh explosion and get off it's just more like the consistency and actually finishing those plays is not there but you know we see defensive line projects go high every year and since there aren't really that many guys in this class that are going to be getting a lot of first round high like he could be someone that ends up there just due to scarcity uh most pro ready Aleem McNeil from uh, NC State. He's a nose tackle, and you know, like it's not not very exciting. But uh, he's, hey, Dave Gettleman's excited. Dave, Dave Gettleman's going to pop him at eleven now that he lost Alvin uh, to uh, to Minnesota. But Aleem, like he he's a fun watch because he's just one of those guys who's just an absolute tank in the middle of the line of scrimmage. But you know, not too much chops as a pass rusher. But he's just one of those guys that 
gets it and is able to kind of decipher blocking schemes. I think that that's one thing that helps people get on the field uh, really quick early in their careers. Like if you can just decipher what's going on and not get like moved 10 yards off the ball, then uh, you're probably going to be someone that's coveted by the NFL, not in the first round because he's not a great pass rusher, like I said, but still like a plug and play nose tackle. That's still something that's valuable to have uh, in today's NFL. Uh under the radar upside swing guy, uh, William Bradley King from Baylor. Baylor. I only watched one game of his, but it's really impressive. He's this guy that transferred from Arkansas State to Baylor. Uh, he has a game up on YouTube against West Virginia. And if you can just get past how bad the the blocking is by this tight end uh, on what offense is, like he's got some tools. He he almost kind of moves like Alden Smith without like the the I guess killer instinct like the same killer instinct as a football player like how to get by blockers uh when to use certain moves like when to hit the kill switch and find the quarterback like he doesn't have that feel for the game but just movement wise he looks like someone who can be uh a starter at edge once he kind of figures out uh how to play and then I I uh, I have my most fun player to watch was Kiris Tonga from BYU uh and he has his, so he's like 64 330 pounds, like one of these planet theory guys that are just so big that you just don't really see a way how they can fail in the NFL. But he has his game uh, against Coastal Carolina. And if you're not familiar with Coastal Carolina's offense, like all of their offensive linemen are like 260 to like 275, like in that range. And Kyrus has like 60 pounds on all of them. And he's just throwing guys out the club, like left and right. And it's and like he's actually fast too. He can run like a four eight at like three hundred thirty pounds. Uh, so that's a, a pretty fun to watch. And then uh, the last one, best overall prospect on the defensive line, I had Barmore. Not, I don't think he's like super flashy, but he just looks like someone who's been in an NFL program for three years already. Like really polished with his pass rush moves. Uh, pretty good athlete, and I think he only turns like twenty two this summer. So. Uh, still got time before you hit this prime. I think he's probably going to be the highest uh, drafted interior guy or edge guy. So yeah, that's uh, just ran through the fire. <laughs> there but... it is. <laughs> there it is. We'll uh, we'll post that over for the win, and you guys can dig in a little bit more. Uh, I'm anxious to read that. I'm I'm basing all of my defensive line takes on on that article. Yeah. Because I'm not watching this group. They, you did not excite me about. No, the never... there's not much going on here. Even like last year with Chase Young, that wasn't interesting at all either. Like, who wanted to read a bunch of words about Chase Young? Like, you could just watch a highlight video and be like, "Oh yeah, he's good. He's going to dominate he's at the NFL." Destroying NFL everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's all we got for this show. Uh, we dug in on a lot. Unless you guys really want to get into the Edelman thing. Mm, no, not no. a Hall of Famer. No. Not. Not even not. the best white slot receiver in New England history. Yeah, like Wes Welker was so much better than him. Yeah. And it wasn't like, I don't know, maybe this wasn't a thing, but Danny Amendola had like this reputation for stepping it up in the playoffs. So you could argue that he wasn't even the clutchest white slot receiver in New England history. I don't I, I don't think I can say anything about that as a Falcons fan. Like, I don't know if I have the right. <laughs> oh, to that's a good point. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No Hall of Fame for, for Julian Edelman. No. Just, just not happening. All right. Thanks for joining us here at the counter. We'll be back next week. More draft stuff. Man, the draft is not even next week, right? It's the week no, after. It's two weeks. It's two weeks away. 
Jeez, man. So we got plenty of time. We'll uh, we'll get into the quarterbacks. We'll we'll figure out if this Mac Jones at three thing is really actually going to happen. Uh, and break down some other positions for you. Should be a good time. Hope you'll join us then. Take care. The Counter, an NFL podcast from USA Today Sports. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.